needs? Who needs God? And here's the idea. In, in church life, we typically take the Easter story as an assumption. And we think the Easter story, everybody believes it, everybody agrees with it, everybody accepts it. And there's this great big celebration on Easter weekend, and people go to church on Easter Sunday, and there's Easter events, and churches put on all these things, and everybody just seems to have the assumption that, yeah, 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 everybody agrees with it, everybody believes it, but the reality is not everybody does, and not everybody who attends, who attends a church does. And some people who attend church week after week after week have many, many questions about Christianity, the Bible, Easter, when Easter comes. And usually at Easter time, the questions, you know, they get more and more intense uh, as people start talking about Jesus and his death and his resurrection. Well, the questions get a little higher. They do at Christmas, but they also do at Easter. Um, so I'm convinced that, uh, you know, that these, these questions need to be answered. And, and people need to, to have an understanding of all this stuff. And uh, so in, in part one, we talked about a new kind of atheism. It's really not that new, but atheism 2.0. And we looked at some of the implications of what atheism, atheism really leads to. Uh, I don't think that those implications are particularly attractive to that many people, but there are a great many people these days, especially people in their 20s and their 30s, who are walking away from the church, who are walking away from Christianity, who are walking away from religion, and they say, you know what, I learned that stuff when I was a kid, but I grew up and I realized that really those things aren't really that true. And so a lot of people have walked away or are walking away or are thinking about walking away. What are they walking toward? Well, we talked about that in, in part one. And uh, last week we talked about the, the, I call them the gods of the no testament. So sometimes people walk away from Christianity because they're believing in a God that they were taught in Sunday school that isn't even real in the first place. Or maybe they heard a really good sermon one day or what they thought was a good sermon and they learned about, for example, the protective bubble God. You know, nothing bad will ever happen to me if I'm a Christian, that kind of God. Or the on-demand God. God will answer all my prayers with a yes. All I have to do is pray this way, use a certain formula and God will answer all my prayers with a yes because he has to. After all, he's on demand God. Uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, God, I'll always feel God's presence. I just feel him all the time. And if I don't feel him, then I guess he isn't real because God's my boyfriend, girlfriend, right? Uh, guilt God. So the only thing that God makes you feel is guilty. Uh, the more guilt I feel, the more godly I must be. Guilt equals God. The more guilty I am, I feel guilty. Yes, I must be really, really spiritual. The more guilty I look, the more sad I look, the more godly I am. You know, guilt equals God. Uh, don't think, don't ask. If you're going to believe in God, don't think. Don't think about anything. Don't think. Don't think about your faith. Don't ask questions. Never, never, never do that. <laughs> don't think. It's bad to think. And the more I know, the, the smaller God becomes, uh, the more I know this is, this is not, not a real God. And finally, the anti-science God. You can't, you can't be scientific. You can't believe in science or accept science or accept modern science and accept the Bible. You've got, you've got a choice. <laughs> you've got to believe the Bible and reject science altogether, or you accept science altogether and you reject the Bible. You've got a choice. You're stuck in the middle, right? All of these, all of these presentations of God are, are all flawed, 
and they're not really what you see in the Bible at all. Uh, today, we're going to talk a little more specifically about the Bible and the question, the Bible says, are you sure? Are you sure? So the most, I, I've asked Christians for, well, really more than 20 years, and I've asked other people, and people have asked me. I love this particular question. Um, why do you believe? I have asked Christians this question over and over and over again. I get the same answer. When they see they're Christian, and you say, well, why? Why do you believe this Christianity thing? I don't know if every, anybody's ever asked, asked you that question, or you maybe ask yourself that question, why do I believe this? You know what the most common answer is? And I've discovered that this is not, uh, this is not just my experience. I've discovered that people all over Canada, the U.S., and the world, when they pose this question to Christians, they generally get this answer from Christians. So why do you believe in Christianity? Do you know what the answer, the most common answer is? Because I have faith. That's the most common answer, because I have faith. Why do you believe in all these things? Because I have faith. Okay, so man, maybe some of you on Facebook, you, you, you think the same thing. Um, do, do you know what a problem that is in terms of an answer to that kind of a question? It, it, what, you, what you call that, it's a, that's a circular argument. Why do you believe in Christianity? Because I have faith is like saying, why do you believe in Christianity? Because I believe. Wow, if that's, if that's your reason, number one, that shows perhaps a problem in your understanding of faith because faith doesn't make something true. Um, you can believe all you want with, with huge passion and pomp and fervor that the world is flat. You can join the Flat Earth Society. You can do a blog and, a, and, you know, make money trying to teach that the earth is flat. You can believe it with all of your heart that the earth is flat. Does it make the earth flat, yes or no? Talk about anti-science God, right? It, do, it does not make it so because you believe it does not make it so. So to say, well, I believe in Christianity because I have faith, number one, it shows a misunderstanding of faith. Number two, wow, uh, if, that's your, if that's your reason and you're talking to a person who maybe is open-minded about Christianity and about the Bible and that's the answer, you know what they're going to say? They're going to say, boy, I sure hope I have faith one day because I don't have faith right now. I hear you. That's good for you. You have faith. I don't have faith. I need I need maybe a reason. Um, so if anything that you, you may get from this message, there's got to be an answer that has something to do with reality and fact. If, you, if you're going to base your life on it, it's got to be more than, well, because I believe it, that makes it true. But that's the most common answer. Um, and by the way, uh, I did put my cell phone up in the corner, and you're all going to see it on the, on the stream as well. Uh, please, please, please let me know your questions. Uh, one, only one has come in. It was an excellent question. We answered it last week. Uh, but please text it to me. And uh, if I have time, I'll answer it live on the fly. If not, it'll wait till next week and send it to me on the stream and, um, and I will answer it for you, okay? 
Uh, so today we're going to look we're going to look at the Bible in in three ways and answer this question. The Bible says, "Are you sure?" Some of you grew up in a church context, and it was, "Well, the Bible says it. I believe it, and that settles it." Right? So I accept the authority of the Bible. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Oh man, you got some really strong faith if that's your that's your reason for believing the Bible. Uh, wow, you, you want to convince an unbelieving world based on that? Well, I hope, I hope they have the faith uh, that's expressed there. Um, so I want to talk about this in, in three ways, and I need you to track with me. There's going to be a lot of slides on the screen. Some of this, some of you have never, ever heard this before in your life. Some of you, you're going to be really surprised by it. You're going to say, I didn't know that. Nobody ever told that to me. Nobody ever said that to me in any church, in any sermon. So I'm going to try and do that for you. It's, it's quite a bit of content, uh, but I'm going to do it as quickly as I can. So I need you to, to track with me, okay? Number one, uh, the Bible says, are you sure? Did you know that we don't even have the original Bible? Did you know that? So I have a picture on the screen there. Please, may I have your autograph? You ever been to a, a, uh, an event maybe where someone was signing autographs? You know, a rock star or uh, you don't go to rock concerts, do you? It's okay. You know, uh, an author at a book signing, you know, they sign their autograph. Uh, an athlete, an uh, entertainer. You know, you sign your autograph. Have you ever seen that done before? We call that an autograph. You've got, the, you've got the original person writing their signature on it. We call that an autograph. When we talk about the Bible, we don't have an autograph. We don't have any originals. When we talk about the Bible, we don't have any. You say, well, hold on now. What, what do we have? Now, here's the first thing I want to debunk for you. The Bible is not a, a magic book. It's not like a book of spells or something. It's not hocus pocus. It's, it's literature. That's what the Bible is. And when you talk about literature, especially old, old, old literature, and this is ancient literature, we do not have the actual, you know, piece of animal skin that Moses wrote on or that David wrote some of the Psalms on or that, I don't know, pick your author, Samuel wrote some of perhaps 1 Samuel on or Matthew wrote on papyrus with his, with his, his writing instrument. We do not have any of those. And we've got 66 books, at least in our Bible, what I'll call the Protestant Bible. The Catholic one's a little different, but that's a subject for another day. Uh, but in all those 66 books, we don't have any original at all. And even if someone said, oh, I found an original, you know, in the dust in Jerusalem, here's an original book of Deuteronomy. No one would be able to prove it. No one would be able to say, well, yeah, Moses was the guy who wrote that. There'd be no picture of, you know, Moses writing on some piece of animal skin. Or Nobody would be able to prove it. We don't have any originals at all, at all, at all. You say, well, what do we have then? That's really depressing uh, if, you're, if you're telling us we have the, we have the inspired infallible, inerrant, authoritative word of God. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. There are no originals. I don't know if anybody ever told you that, but that's true. We don't have any originals, but wh what do we have? We have copies. 
And uh, there's a fancy term for this. We call these manuscripts. We do have those. Um, and I put a picture on the screen here, and I want you to, to think of it in perhaps a way that you never thought of it before. Do, do all of you have a phone that sends text messages, or most of you? Raise your hand if you have a device that sends and receives text messages. Okay, I'm going to teach you something about the Bible you never learned before, probably. Uh, what we do have when it comes to the Bible is a whole, whole, whole bunch of text messages. So this message is, is kind of funny. Um, and it, this, I, this is a true message. Uh, we've already gotten like three inches of rain so far. And the person who replies says, yeah, it's bad here too. My backyard is flooded. There's a family of clowns seeking shelter in my shed. Uh, oh, well, at least they can juggle and entertain you until the storm passes. So what do you see as the problem in that text message? There is one problem with that text message. Just one. Just one. We don't know who is writing? Okay, that's true. It may not necessarily be a problem, but there is one problem in that text message. One. I'll read it again. There, there appears to be a circumstance where there's rain in this communication. We've already gotten like three inches of rain so far. Yeah, it's bad here too, someone says. So they've got rain in their area. My backyard is flooded. There's a family of clowns seeking shelter in my shed. Clowns? Oh, well, at least they can juggle and entertain you until the storm passes. What's the problem in the text message? The what did the autocorrect do? Yeah, yeah. What's the, what's the word that could be suspicious in this text message? Clowns. Yeah. Do you really think that there's a family of clowns in the person's shed? Would that make sense that there's a family of clowns there? Now, granted, the, the other person answers perhaps in a sarcastic tone. You know, at least they can juggle and entertain you until the storm passes. But you're probably going, ah, clowns, there must be so something went on there. There's an autocorrect that went on there. It sure would be nice if we had another text message that clarified that one word, clowns. Would, wouldn't that help? Perhaps it may have been raccoons. Perhaps it may have been skunk. Hopefully not skunks. Could have been squirrels, could have been raccoons. But you look at that and you say, ah, there's something wrong with that. You just learned how we get the Bible. Because what we have, and I'll, I'll stick with, with the New Testament alone today. This is a lot harder with the Old Testament, but I'll do it with the New Testament. What we have is a whole bunch of text messages. And we call these copies. And they can be a little tiny scrap like this big. They can be bigger, they can be a whole page, they can be a whole book uh, of the New Testament, they can, they can be the whole New Testament, although that's a lot more rare. We have a whole bunch of these little scraps, these little copies. I've stood in front of some of them in my lifetime. Uh, some of them are really, really, really old. I'll show you how old in a moment. We have a whole lot of them. Um, it would help if you use an example from your from your own life, you know, let's say you want to meet uh, you want to meet somebody at Starbucks at 8 a.m. So you send your text message, 
meet me at Starbucks at 8 a.m. But your autocorrect or your lazy fingers, it's meet me at star at 8. And, and then you send a subsequent message and it's, you know, sorry, bucks at 8 a.m. Well, what's the original message that was to be conveyed? It was meet me at Starbucks at 8 a.m. And you've got two, you've got two text messages and you can discern what the, the original message should have been, yes? This is exactly what we do with the New Testament. This is exactly what we do. We have thousands and thousands of these text messages, if you will, these copies. And you've got, you know, one says clowns. And we say, oh, wow, clowns. It can't be clowns. It's got, there's got to be something else there. And then another manuscript, it's got the word in it, squirrels. Oh, okay, now we know there's family of squirrels there. That's exactly what we do with the New Testament. That may sound discouraging, but I'll show you why it's encouraging in a few moments. And, and some of these, these copies, these manuscripts, they have a little bit of elbow room in them. There's a little bit of playroom in them. And some of them, uh, well, many of them, they, they say generally the same thing, but there's questions that we have about, all right, we have this copy that says this and this copy that says that. Which one, which one tells us what that autograph said? Which one tells us what that original said? Because we don't have the original. We're trying to rebuild it. We're trying to assemble it from all these copies that we have. What did the original say? Let me give you one example of this. And I left this out of our previous series. Remember the Lord's Prayer? So our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in. Give us this day our daily and lead us not into, but deliver us from the, ah, and what comes next? Some of you old King James people. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. That is one of the questions that we have. We do not know if that little passage of the Lord's Prayer was in the autograph, so to speak, or not. We're not sure. Because we've got a whole bunch of manuscripts that, that, that don't have it. We have some that do have it. And we're really not sure. So what we do, especially in modern Bibles, is we put a little note at the bottom. And we say, well, some manuscripts don't have this. We're not sure. We're not sure if it was in the original or not. But we're going to put it in here. And maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Now, let me just ask you. Those of you who are getting nervous and you say, well, hold on. Is not the Bible the inspired, authoritative, infallible, inerrant word of God? Sure it is. But we have to know, well, what did it say there? And we're not 100% sure. Does the, if it wasn't there, does this affect something major? I mean, we can learn that, you know, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever by reading the, the rest of the New Testament. We can learn about the sovereignty of God, the lordship of Jesus through reading the rest of the New Testament. Does it affect anything major? No, but it is a question that we have. Do you understand that? We call that a variant it's very important for you to know this because sometimes when you read a passage of Scripture or when you're sharing with a, with a person, you're sharing your faith with a person who's not a Christian, they may know it and you don't. I remember debating a, a Jehovah's Witness about the Trinity one time. And there's a, there's a passage in 1 John chapter 5, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and these three are one. Wow, amazing passage if you want to talk about the Trinity. And this Jehovah's Witness looked at me and said, your Bible is, that's not the original Bible. That's been tampered with. That's what you're looking at there. 
And what I learned was, well, he, the person may be right, they may be wrong. That little passage is from a really, really recent manuscript. Uh, it could be in the original, could not be. Does this affect the Trinity at all? No. You can, you can discover the Trinity on almost every page uh, of the New Testament. So this is, this is what we have when we're looking at the Bible, especially when we're looking at the New Testament. We have to play this kind of science uh, using this idea of text messages, if you will, to try and put the thing together. That may sound discouraging at first. Let me tell you why it's encouraging. Um, we can actually date, especially when it comes to the New Testament, we can date the originals even though we don't have any. We can date them to a reasonable degree of accuracy, especially uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul. So I'm going to put a little chart on the screen and go through it, you know, a little slide by slide. Uh, it's going to go by quick because I don't want to put you to sleep too, too, too fast, all right? Um, so the first, the first little picture is going to be of, the, of Jesus and the cross, all right? And we'll use that as a reference point if you'll switch the slide. Um, so you see the little red cross there? Okay, this is, this is the crucifixion of Jesus. And uh, even, even liberal scholars will give you that. And they'll say, okay, we, there's a reasonable amount of evidence to say that Jesus Christ really lived and that he really was crucified. We can see this in some, some writers who are not even Christians in the time of Jesus in the first century. We can see this referred to. So it's, it's really not, it's not really challenged anymore that Jesus actually existed and he actually died on a cross. The rest of it is challenged, of course, but that isn't. So if you, if you plop that little thing at AD 33, which is the typical, uh, the typical date that we have, what we can do is we can actually date with, with almost perfect certainty the writings of the Apostle Paul. And this is really super cool and super important for you because it shows you how old all this stuff is. We know with a, with a great degree of certainty that Paul wrote between 50 and 68. So remember, Jesus dies around the, the year of 33, and Paul is starting to write by the year 50. That's a difference of 17 years. You say 17 years, that's a long time. Not by their standards, standards it is not. Uh, the people who experienced all of this stuff were still alive when Paul started writing. How do you know Paul started writing in AD 50? Well, it's easy to, to show that. Um, if you go to the next slide, we have a couple of details um, using the book of Acts and the writer of the book of Acts, who is Luke. He is meticulous about all these little pieces and parts and details. You know, sometimes you read the, the book of Luke or the book of Acts and you see all these details, you are like, oh, this is so boring. Why do I need to read all this stuff? Why is this stuff in the Bible? Well, not when you're trying to learn why the Bible is true uh, is that boring. That's really exciting when you want to learn if you have a reason to believe the things that you claim. And we know that the Jewish people were ex expelled out of Rome in the year 49. We know this from a Roman historian, not even from the Bible. And yet it's referred to in Acts chapter 18 and verse 2. It happened in the year 49. And we also know about a, a leader by the name of Gallio and a, a specific appointment that he had, a political appointment in the province of Achaia, which you read about in the book of Acts. We know when this was too. And we know this not from the Bible. We know it from regular non-Christian history. So we know that he was the proconsul in Achaia in 51. We know that the Jews were expelled from Rome in 49. When we see this stuff in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 18, verse 2, Acts chapter 18, verse 12, we see it right there. And we see that Paul arrives in the city of Corinth right in this time. 
And we know that Paul, and even, even non-Christian scholars will say this, that Paul started writing uh, one of his letters to the Thessalonians in, the, in that time period, and that would be in the year 50. And this, this is a, a very, very well-attested fact that this guy started writing this stuff in the year 50. And we know the back end of his writings to be the year 68 because, if you go to the next slide, we also see in the book of Acts that a guy named Festus, who is a ruler, he came into Judea in the year 60. And again, we know this from non-Christian sources. And he makes a decision to send Paul off to Rome to stand trial for his alleged crime uh, of, of somehow blaspheming the Roman Empire and so on. And uh, we see this referred to in Acts chapter 25, verses 1 to 6. And this is a real guy. Festus was a real guy. All of this stuff we can corroborate using non-Christian sources, okay? And we know that Paul died under the emperor Nero. Nero died, we know, in 68. So the, so the time frame that we have for the literature of Paul, all that stuff you read in the New Testament that Paul wrote, it's from 50 to 68. This much we know. So if you go back to our chart, how many of you are asleep yet? Not yet? Okay, okay, okay. And you go to the next slide. Okay, you see the little red dots there? Those red dots are super, super, super important. They're not even in the Bible. They're never referred to one single time in the Bible, except um, Jesus predicted those, those dots uh, in Matthew chapter 24, but no writer refers to the event itself. And what happened at those dots in the year 70 is that the city of Jerusalem was completely destroyed. The temple was destroyed. It was burned to the ground. There were thousands of Jewish people who were sold into the slave market in Rome. There were hundreds and hundreds of Jewish people who were crucified. It was the end of the period called the Jewish Wars, which started in 66 and ended in 70. Okay? This is like the biggest, most apocalyptic moment in the time in the history of the Jewish people. The temple has never been rebuilt. You can go visit Jerusalem and see the little remains of a couple of stones, and you see the wailing wall there that people pray up against. But the thing has been destroyed. It was destroyed right at those little red dots there. That's never, never referred to in the pages of the New Testament. The most likely reason is that it hadn't happened yet. Uh, if Paul wrote between 50 and 68, that's just before. Jesus predicted that this would happen in Matthew 24, but no writer refers to it. And it's really, really important that you know that because there's a strong likelihood that that means that the New Testament was written uh, before that event took place or why didn't they refer to it, right? They, they would have. It would have made the case for the second coming of Jesus a lot more convincing, but they do not refer to it at all, at all, at all. Um, if you go to the next slide, we see that the New Testament, okay, the, the New Testament's got 27 books in it. We can see that the New Testament uh, starts to be quoted and preached about and written about by three men in particular, a guy named Ignatius, another guy named Polycarp, and another guy named Clement. And these are people who were leaders in the early church in, in starting from the year 96. They had connections with the original apostles, with Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and they started preaching and teaching from the New Testament as early as 96, okay? That's where we start seeing all this stuff taught and preached and quoted and written on, you know, sort of like what I'm doing today. That started happening around the year 96. Are you tracking with me so far? 
Okay, if you go to the next slide. So what that means is the rest of the New Testament, i.e. all the stuff that Paul didn't write, must have been written sometime before it started to be quoted, right? So the Clement is writing about it in 96 or Ignatius or Polycarp. These guys are writing and preaching about this in 96. So it all has to be done and floating around by that time. So we've got a huge window from, let's say, 33 to 96 where the rest of the New Testament must have been composed. Are you tracking with me? So we can date Paul to a T, the rest of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are not real sure exactly when these people wrote it down. We have no way of, of being sure. But there are some things that they said that we can be very sure what time they were writing about. If you go to the next slide. So this is from Luke chapter 3 and verses 1 to 2. And look how he pins himself into a little tiny little smidgen. He says, it's the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. We know from non-Christian history, Tiberius Caesar started uh, his leadership in the year 14. So the 15th year would be the year 29. So the year 29, we know Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. We know that he was a real guy. Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, the Tetrarch of uh, Ituria. And you have all these little details that pin the time in that Luke is writing about. And this is a Christmas story. So this is um, um, a little bit after Christmas, actually, when John the Baptist comes on the scene and starts preaching. This is the time. It's the year 14. So this writer, he pins himself in and he lets everybody know this is the year that I am writing about. This is what the rest of the people in the New Testament do. We don't know exactly when they wrote it, but we know what they're writing about. If you go to the next slide. So again, we've got the rest of the New Testament, and this is even considering the fact that Jerusalem's destroyed in 70. Let's say that maybe some of it was written after 70. We don't know for sure, but let's just say that, okay? Even considering that, we have all of that stuff, and then these copies, these text messages that we have, these things start floating around as early as 100. That's the earliest that we have so far. They must have been floating around before that because how could they be quoted by people if they weren't floating around? I have stood in front of some of those copies, little tiny little scraps of, of little papyrus, you know, and you see them written in the Greek language. They're quite spectacular when you stand in front of them. So that's the whole thing about the New Testament and, and, and how old it is and how we got it. And we, we work with this stuff here. We work with these copies and we try and again put together all these text messages and say, all right, what did the autographs say if we don't have them? You tracking with me so far? So that's how we got the book that we call the New Testament. That's how we got it. That's how we continue to get it. I think we'll probably start finding copiers, copies that are older, but we just don't have any that are older yet. They must have been floating around, though, if they were quoted by those early church fathers as early as 96, all right? You say, what? I don't care about all these dates. Like, you're boring me. This isn't a classroom. How does this relate to my life? Okay, listen. What this means is that what you're reading in your New Testament was being transmitted while the people were still alive that experienced it, it was written down so fast, it was circulated so fast that we have an unbroken, uh, we can call it a chain of custody of the information from right at the beginning. We have an unbroken chain. We can go right back to the beginning and say we have got the original message even though we don't have the autographs of the message. Do you understand what that means? 
That means when you read your New Testament, you can have some confidence when you read it that you're not just, this is not some, something that popped onto the scene, you know, 500 years after Jesus was uh, dead and allegedly rose from the dead. No, you've got an unbroken chain of custody right to the beginning. Uh, those of you who have a, a Right Now Media account now, and you've got that email from me, um, you need to start fishing around in your Right Now Media account because there's tons and tons of information about this. If you surf around in your, your, um, uh, in your browser and look in the section called apologetics, it doesn't mean you're apologizing for being a Christian. It's a word that means defense. And you look in that section, you're going to see dozens and dozens and dozens of people who talk about this. One that I would recommend to you, and especially if you have kids as well, is a, a rather unique uh, teacher of this, and he is a former cold case homicide investigator in Los Angeles County. Uh, his name is Jay Warner Wallace, and he writes about this stuff from the perspective of a cold case homicide uh, uh, investigator. So I would recommend his stuff to you, but anything that you can find on Right Now Media will help you to navigate this even further. I can't get into all the details today. But we have a, like an unbroken chain of custody is what, what I want you to understand. When you read your New Testament, you can have confidence that you're reading uh, the real thing. Okay, point number two. And this is super, super important because I've heard this so many times from Christians. Just understand this. Jesus is not the Bible. I know that sounds silly, but Jesus is not the Bible. The two are very, very, very separate. Why do I say this? There are some people, and I've met Christians over the years who think this, and they say, well, uh, the, the Bible always was. It's the Word of God. And they kind of look at it like almost like a magic book, like a book of spells or something. And the Bible always was. And the Bible actually became personified in the person of Jesus. And so when, when you look at a passage like John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, and then verse 14, and the Word became flesh. There are people who say, well, the word is the Bible, and the Bible became flesh in the person of Jesus. Okay, that's not at all correct. Okay, that's not what the Bible is teaching in that passage. The word is a he, and the he is Jesus. Jesus was around way before the Bible was even written. Okay, if Jesus was, is God, Jesus existed even before, you know, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John wrote, and the Bible was even written. So you have to distinguish between the two. You're not dealing with a magic book or a book of spells. Jesus is not the Bible. You can know everything about the Bible. You can quote the Bible, teach the Bible, preach the Bible, memorize the Bible. I remember a few years ago there was a book that came out. Uh, it was called The Bible Code uh, based on another book called The Signature of God. And the idea of this book was, if you'll, if you'll, if you'll believe this, is what, what the people were, were writing about is that if you take the Bible and you put it in its original language and you make it look kind of like a crossword puzzle. Any of you do crossword puzzles still? Oh, raise your hands. You, some of you guys, you do. I know you guys do crossword puzzles. Yeah, I can see. So crossword puzzle, you lay the Bible out like a crossword puzzle and you can actually find secret words. In the Bible, there's an author by the name of Michael Drosnin who, who used this to predict the assassination of Itzhak Rabin. 
And he went to Itzhak Rabin with his information. He says, I have, I have studied the Bible backwards and sideways, and you are going to be assassinated. Here's the text that proved it. And guess what? Itzhak Rabin was assassinated. And this man wrote a book called The Bible Code. He's a, not a Christian at all. He's a journalist, and the thing went crazy in terms of book sales. There's even a sequel to it. There are Christians that wrote about this. Listen, you can read the Bible backwards, upside down, sideways, crooked in the original language, remember it, memorize it, preach it, teach it. If you don't have the Jesus that the Bible speaks about, you know what you have? Nothing. You've got nothing. The Bible is not Jesus, and the central focus of the Bible is Jesus himself. If you know Jesus, you know everything. If you know all the Bible but not Jesus, you know nothing. And you, say, you could say, I believe the Bible, but I don't believe Jesus, then you've got nothing. Either you have Jesus or you don't, and that is the central question. It's not, well, I'm a re I really know the Bible. Well, what do you think of Jesus? Well, nothing. Well, then you have nothing. Okay, Jesus even talked about this. John chapter 5, he says to a group of religious people, he says, you study the scriptures diligently. You're so, you know the Bible so well because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think that in the Bible you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me making himself the focus of attention, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. He's speaking of the first five books of the Bible there. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So you know the scriptures, you believe the scriptures, you, but you reject me. If you reject me, you reject everything. So some people, and I've seen some Christians do this, and uh, again, we talked about this a little bit last week, and they're so hung up on, you know, did, did Jonah really get swallowed by a whale? Did he really, like, how could a guy get swallowed by a whale? I mean, come on, how can the Red Sea actually part like that way? How can this happen and how can that happen? And you're telling me there was like a worldwide flood and, you know, how, and let's debate about this and don't get me wrong, it's good to debate about it. That's, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. And, you, you know, let's say you, you become convinced. Yeah, Jonah, he was really swallowed by a whale. Ha <laughs> ha, I know and I can prove it. I can prove that the walls of Jericho fell down in such and such a way. I can prove that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. I can prove that there was a worldwide flood. But what do you believe about Jesus is the question. Because all those things, all of those things eventually point to a person, the person of the Lord Jesus. And what he's saying is you can have all of that. You can win every argument you want. But if you don't have me, you don't have anything. All you have is knowledge about those things but those things point to me. The early Christians, especially the non-Jewish Christians, which we use the word Gentiles for that, especially them, they didn't have any Bible. 
They didn't have any Old Testament. They didn't know anything. This was like the biggest controversy was, oh boy, all these non-Jewish people are apparently coming to, to Christ and they're apparently even being filled with the Spirit, these people. We see this in the book of Acts. What are we gonna do? These people don't know anything. They don't know the Bible. The, the men aren't circumcised. This is a disaster. They've got no religion in their life whatsoever and yet they're coming to this Christ. What are we gonna do with these people? And this is a big controversy we see in the early church. Those people knew nothing of all these arguments that we argue about today. They didn't sit there and say, well, you know, was Jonah really swallowed by a whale, yes or no? Because everything is, is about that. <laughs> you know, we, we have to get that detail right. And they would look at you and they'd say, who's Jonah? Like, you look at even some people in the book of Acts, non-Christian people, non, or sorry, non-Jewish people with no religious background affiliated to, the, to, to uh, the Bible of that time or the Old Testament, and these people start becoming Christians. If you ask them those questions, they'd say, we don't know any of that. Like, we don't know what you know. You, know, you apparently know everything. In the 21st century, we don't know any of those things. All we know is about Jesus and this offer of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's all we know. We don't know anything else. My point is, that is the focus. Ultimately, it's Jesus, it's his life, it's his death, it's his resurrection, or it's nothing at all. You can have all the rest of the stuff. You can know all the arguments. You can be very persuasive. You can be very convinced. But if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. So, uh, so in, in, uh, in closing here, I'm going to give you what I, what I call the problem of unbelief. Not the problem of belief, but the problem of unbelief. Uh, maybe you, you've listened and you've, you've tracked with me thus far and you're saying, wow, it, do, it doesn't even sound like we have the original Bible. This is kind of depressing. Like, this is so boring. I don't understand. Let me give you, let me give you 20 plus years. Okay, this is 20 plus years of, of, of work that I have done. Uh, I brought myself through, through all the theological training, all myself to, to end up being an ordained minister in our fellowship. I did it all myself. I didn't go to a college. I did it all individually. It took me years and years and years. Just let me give you something for free here that, that, uh, that, that I've worked on for, for quite a number of years, and I'll call it the problem of unbelief. When it comes down to it, when we look at the Easter story, when we look at the Gospels in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, do you know what our problem is in the end? Do you know what the problem is of the culture that, that we live in and why 98, 99% of, of this culture, especially in Quebec, says, you know what? We have zero interest in your religion. You know, we're nuns. We talked about nuns uh, over the last couple of weeks. N-O-N-E, we have no religion. We're nuns, okay? Do, do you know when you talk to them about your Jesus and about Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, do you know what the real problem is? The problem is you've got to deal with, you know, someone fed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. Somebody walked on water. Somebody rose from the dead. What? Somebody raised someone from the dead. Uh, somebody controlled the weather. Like, do you expect me to believe in these kinds of things? There's no way that those things happen. How do you expect me to believe in this Christianity thing, in this Jesus thing? You know, okay, Jesus lived a great life. He's, you know, has a very high, 
you know, talk about forgiveness and the golden rule and all those things. Those things are terrific. But don't tell me about walking on water and rising, raising dead people and all that stuff. I just cannot believe those things. Okay, that is the major, major hurdle that a lot of people have to jump over. It's a major hurdle even for people who attend churches. They sort of secretly pretend that they believe these things because everybody will laugh at them if they say, you know, I really struggle with miracles in the Bible. They don't want to say that, but they really do privately struggle with these things because they've got no way to answer the question. Let me, let me just help you with that, okay? I call it the problem of unbelief. And what we, what we do, if we're being honest, okay, relatively honest, and we give these people, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and the book of Acts, just five books, if we give those people a little bit of grace, just a little, a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, what we see with these people is these people were accurate and right and correct in what I'll call the natural part of the story. So, uh, you know, they're, they're right about the politicians of the time, the, the geography, the places, the people, the things, the customs, who is, who is the, this leader, who is that leader. They're right about all that stuff. You know, they're, they, they, okay, Jesus allegedly fed 5,000 people. Well, they were right about the place. But it wasn't, obviously wasn't 5,000 people. I mean, it couldn't have been 5,000 people because that requires a miracle and miracles don't happen. So maybe the author's right about the place, but he's not right about the supernatural part, okay? So what we do is we get to a place where we say, all right, they were correct about such and such and such. Anything that is not supernatural, we'll give it to them. And we'll say, all right, they were correct about that. And there's scores of these little minutiae, boring details that you can corroborate and you can, you can verify. Scores of them. Okay, there's still some, some that are unanswered, but there's scores of them. You can say, okay, he says this was the leader of this province at this time. And you can check it. You say, well, he was right about that. And he's right about that. He's right about that. So all these little natural things, I'll call them. You can, you can make a strong case that the gospel writers and the writer of the book of Acts, he's right about these things. They're right about these things. And we, but we cry out in our unbelief, but they can't be right about all this supernatural stuff. I mean, come on, it's, it's over and over and over again. It's story after story after story of these supernatural things. You know, a leper is healed and a blind person sees and a crippled person gets up and walks. Come on, these things do not happen. And so we'll give them, we'll give them the natural part of it, but the rest of it, uh-uh, not going there. It can't have happened. It's nice you believe it. It's nice you have faith. It's nice you, you believe your Christianity is true because you believe it and because you have faith, but I can't go there because I don't have the faith that you have. That's the cry of much of this culture, and it may be the cry of your own heart as you struggle to kind of believe these supernatural things. Let me tell you what the problem is of unbelief with that. When you, when you have that as your position, and when you say, well, they were right about such and such and such, but they have to be wrong about anything miraculous, you only have three choices. If you're going to sustain unbelief in the miraculous parts of the Gospels and the book of Acts, you only have three ways to do it, only three. It always boils down to the same three, no matter how you slice the cake. It always boils down to the same three. I'll give them to you as we close here. Number one. The supernatural stuff, all the miraculous stuff that we read, 
Every little last miracle that we read, all of this stuff was not in the autographs. It was not there. It couldn't have been there. They were right about, you know, Herod, and they're right about Pontius Pilate, and they're right about Tiberius Caesar. Yeah, 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 no problem. But they're not right about all this supernatural stuff because it just wasn't in the originals. It got in there over time. You know, it may be three, four hundred years ago, people started putting all this stuff in, but it just quite simply just was not in the autographs. It wasn't in the originals at all. Remember the chart that I showed you at the beginning? Remember that chart? That's why that chart is so important. Because what that chart shows you is that there's no time for that stuff to be forced in by some, you know, zealous person writing his text message. There's no time to shove in all that supernatural stuff because it's all there in the, in the, in the earliest information that we have. It's in there in the quotes from the early church fathers. It's in the earliest manuscripts. They had to have gotten that information from somewhere. Where did they get it from? They got it because it was floating around. So all the accounts of the miraculous were part and parcel of all the non-miraculous stuff. You can't say that one part of it got shoved into the text later and later and later. You just don't have the option in doing that because you have no time for that to happen. So to say that it all got put in there and it wasn't in the autographs, wow, you have to do a lot of crazy gymnastics to do that. You have to discount a whole lot of stuff and you just, you're on really, really shaky ground if you try and sustain that as a reason to disbelieve those things. You simply don't have enough time for them to be put in there uh, and put in so nicely, I would add, because they're weaved so tightly with all of those natural parts. You'd have to have a genius who, who concocted that and put all those things in. You simply don't have enough time. So option number two, the supernatural and the miraculous stuff, um, it was in there. It was in the originals. It was in the autographs. We'll give that to you. But it was an exaggeration. I mean, come on. These people are from 2,000 years ago. You know, they're a little bit dumb. Maybe they, were, maybe they had too much magic mushroom or they were smoking a little too much cannabis or something. And, you know, these people are dumb, uneducated people. They're a little daft. They're a little obtuse. They, they, they don't know the difference between myth and reality. And so they write, you know, he fed 5,000 people. And they write, he rose Lazarus from the dead. And they write, Jesus was resurrected. But that's not really what happened there exaggerating they're trying to make a bigger point and you know okay we'll say it's in the come on it's an exaggeration the people were silly people we're a lot smarter than them aren't we so what is what we say the problem with that when you actually read what these people wrote they seem very, very aware of the fact what reality is and what fantasy is. They even, some of them, don't want to believe some of the miraculous stuff. Remember we talked about Thomas last week? And Thomas is saying, you know, this report of Jesus risen from the dead, I'm not going to believe that. I want to see, I want to put my fingers in his hands. So there's my test. Let me see the hands and let me put my fingers in his hands. And then I'll believe does he sound like someone who doesn't know the difference between reality and fantasy? You, you look at the Apostle Paul, who's a church hater, who's a, who wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy Christianity. He doesn't want any of this stuff to actually be true. 
And what happens to the apostle Paul? He, he, he turns into a church planter. He turns into the greatest advocate for Christianity in that time. This is not a guy who wanted to believe something to be true and exaggerated it into truth. You, you just can't sustain that idea. You can't go with that idea and say, oh, well, now I've solved the problem. They're exaggerating. They're just foolish fishermen from the first century. It doesn't wash. It doesn't really hold up. Option number three, and this is the worst one. This is the silliest option that you have, but this is the last one. And that is, okay, the supernatural stuff, you know, the feeding of the 5,000, raised Lazarus, walking on water, Jesus being raised from the dead, all that stuff, the angels appearing, exorcisms happening, lepers being healed, blind people being healed, deaf people being healed. Yeah, 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 we'll, we'll give you all that. But I'll tell you what it was. It was a lie. It was a lie is what it was. So Jesus is just a regular guy. None of that stuff really happened. The people who wrote it down wanted to create this idea that Jesus was God. They wanted to voice this idea and create this new religion, and they made Jesus God, but Jesus never claimed to be God. That's not really what happened. The authors whipped this whole thing up to start up this new thing, this new religion, this new following, this new thing. It's a lie. They knew it wasn't true, what they were writing. Of course they knew it wasn't true. They're trying to create something. They're trying to give people hope. They're trying to invent a new kind of view. They're, they're fed up with the Roman system. Maybe they're fed up with the Jewish system and they want to create something new. And so this is what they did. They invented Jesus. They made Jesus God. They invented all these stories and sure they were in the originals, but all it was was a deception when, you, when it boils down to it. This is the worst excuse that you can have. Do you know why it's the worst excuse? Because those people who wrote those things down all were brutally persecuted for what they believed. So they're crucified upside down. They're boiled in, in, in water. They're, they're executed. They're persecuted. Christianity is illegal for the first three centuries. I mean, until Constantine legalized it in the fourth century, it's illegal to be a Christian. Illegal. They were persecuted, tortured, killed, martyred. It was not a good idea to believe in that if you valued your life. So you're telling me that those people who, who wrote that original message died for what they knew was false? Do you ever see that happen anywhere? Uh-uh. People will die for what they believe is true. It may not be true. But they'll certainly believe that it's true. Look at the people who are doing that today. Look at the people in various religious views who will, who will literally sacrifice their own lives, who will, who will blow themselves up even because of what they believe is true. Nobody does that for what they know is false. Um, were any of you alive when Richard Nixon and the whole Watergate thing? There's, a, there's an individual, he's now passed away by the name of Charles Colson. Any of you know that name, Charles Colson? So Charles Colson, um, a wonder, ended up becoming a Christian, wonderful, wonderful teacher and writer. And Colson, who was part of Richard Nixon's inner circle, and Colson went to prison um, as a result of many things, including the whole Watergate scandal. He talks about this idea. And he says, you know, this idea, that, that, that these Christians, you know, wrote down something that they knew was false. 
He said, we couldn't hold the Watergate lie for 10 minutes, much less 10 years. We couldn't keep it down. We couldn't keep it quiet. We couldn't hold that lie for 10 minutes. And we're expected to believe that these early writers of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and Acts deliberately knew that what they were writing was false? Oh, my goodness. This is the worst, lamest excuse that you can have. But this is the only option that you have. You know what it, what it turns into in the end? You have to say, well, I must ruefully admit without maybe wanting to that they were right, these people, and a lot of these details, a lot of these little boring details, they were right, they were right, they were right. And if I'm going to disbelieve the supernatural, I've only got three options, and each of those options is weak. It's a weak argument, really weak. You want to go to bed with that at night and say, I've got a really weak argument against Christianity, that's fine. You can do that. Um, do you know what the early Christians did? Do you know what they said when they were asked that question, why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe in this Jesus? You know what they said? They didn't say what we say. They didn't say, because I have faith. You know what they said? They said, we believe because Jesus died and Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we believe. For them, this was a clear, clear uh, uh, stake in the ground. Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. We know he was dead. We know there's an empty tomb. We saw him. And this is why we believe. We don't believe because we can prove that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Half of them didn't even know there was a Jonah or a whale. <laughs> Half of them didn't know there was a, an Old Testament. Half of them had no clue, especially as Christianity grew and grew and grew and grew and more non-Jewish people started be, to become Christians. They had to learn all of this stuff. And they, we're still learning all of this stuff. They said, we believe because Jesus died on that cross and because he rose from the dead. That's why we believe. And that, my friends, is a very, very good reason for you to believe today. That's a very good reason, young people who, who are here kind of in the front and who, who kind of do everything around here. <laughs> Listen, that's a really good reason. You may not ever be able to prove that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. <laughs> but if you can become convinced of the, the, of the cross of Christ and his empty tomb, my friend, you have everything when you have that. That is what you stake your hat on. That is the reason why we have a right to believe what we believe. And that, my friends, is the reason why we celebrate at Easter. It's not because this is a silly myth and a silly fairy tale. It's because we have a Savior who died and who rose from the dead.